Now, there is a rumor circulating on the internet, uh, especially on social media, that the sitcom, The Simpsons, had predicted the outbreak of the new coronavirus. Now, whilst it is true that in one of the shows we see the residents of Springfield deal with uh, an outbreak of some flu, uh, it can hardly be called a prediction. I mean, the world has seen so many pandemics in the past. Uh, uh, the Spanish flu, the Hong Kong flu, uh, the Asian flu. Uh, so it's obvious that The Simpsons often just looks back. It's only, it tends to look back, and it clearly looked back and thought, let's have something about the flu. Sadly, it seems, though, that uh, with every global crisis, uh, someone pops up on the internet falsely claiming The Simpsons and the other programs have uh, some sort of secret knowledge of the future. There is even an article by Time magazine uh, online that is titled 15 times The Simpsons accurately predicted the future and of course it has their Donald Trump, uh, uh, which of course it did at the time as a sort of parody, uh, which then turned out to be true. Now, of course we shouldn't be surprised that people are very keen to tell us that Omar Simpson is a prophet. Uh, people like predicting the future, don't they? Uh, this is why many people read horoscopes. Uh, it is why the evidence shows that the use of tarot cards and fortune tellers is growing, especially among millennials. It's big business now, it's just growing. It is why when we go to the bookshop, we see that there are so many books on psychic powers fortune-telling, and other sorts of things. It is also why there are entire TV channels dedicated to mediums and psychics who are there to tell us, allegedly, about the future. People want to know their future. You want to know what lies ahead of you. Why is that? Well, it is because there is a sense in all of us that the world we live in is broken. It is not a safe place. We want to know what the future holds so that we can change it or at least manage it or at least buy good insurance policies for it. Incidentally, it is also why we buy insurance policies. We want to be better prepared for the future. That's why we are obsessed with the future. You see, our obsession with the future is a natural response by people who have rebelled against God their creator and want to depend on themselves. The problem is that the things we look to to tell us about the future, like the Simpsons, like occultic practices, these things cannot tell us what the future looks like. They can't. There is only, as we've been reminded as we've been going through Mark, there's only one person who knows our future, the God of the Bible. He knows what will happen to you tomorrow. He knows what will happen to you in 10 days' time. He knows everything that is going to come to pass. He knows where the world is going. And he has revealed it to us where the world is going in the scriptures. He has revealed it to us by coming in the person of the Lord Jesus, particularly in Mark 13, to tell us things concerning what is to come in the days to come. We are currently on the road with Jesus, as you know. And as I said, we are in Mark 13. You remember what day it is, right? It is a Tuesday. It is the final week of the life of Jesus on earth. Well, not quite final week on earth, but final week before he dies and rises from the grave. 
and he's been with his disciples in the temple and now he's at the Mount of Olives. We are in Jerusalem. And Jesus has just told the disciples uh, at the beginning of Mark 13 that the temple is going to be destroyed and uh, uh, the fabulous four, right? I've come, the four disciples, I've uh, come to Jesus. Um, Andrew, John, James, and Peter have come to Jesus and they want to know more. They've heard something uh, shocking and they want Jesus to tell them more about the future. And they have come to Jesus with two questions. They want to know, when will the temple be destroyed? That's very important. We keep that in mind. The second question is, they want to know, how are we going to know when it is about to happen? Now, we noted that the underlying assumption and the reason why the disciples are so concerned is that the disciples, question, the disciples believe the end of the temple means the end of the world. That's why in Matthew's version, you actually have three questions. The first question is, when will the temple be destroyed? How are we going to know it's going to happen? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So that's the underlying assumption. And so when we come to this passage in Mark 13, we should immediately keep in mind that Jesus' response here in Mark 13 is dealing with the issues that the disciples will face in their lifetime and the issues that followers of Jesus after them will live during the time or before the, just before the end of the age will face. So these two things are conflated together. And that one makes Mark 13 so well. The hardest passage reading the Bible for us to understand. So what we did at the beginning is we reminded ourselves what the big truth of Mark 13 is. And the big truth of Mark 13, which we need to keep in mind as we go through this complex passage, is that Jesus is teaching us in Mark 13 that the world is getting worse and worse and will continue to get worse before it gets better when Jesus returns. So you're gonna, you've been hearing a lot of strange things in Mark 13 and you might hear more strange things today. But just keep that in mind, that is a big thing. The world is getting worse and worse and it gets better. But it gets better. Well, the world is getting worse and worse before it gets better when Jesus returns. That's a big truth. Now, the big question now is this. What things should we expect to see before Jesus returns? We know it's getting darker. We know it's going to get darker and darker. But what are we likely to see before Jesus comes to make things get better? Okay? Just how dark is it likely to get before Jesus returns? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 14 to verse 23. And as I said, we'll explore these verses in three sermons, right? This morning, I just want to focus on verse 14, right? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, it helps us to summarize what Jesus is really saying there. What Jesus is saying is that all followers of Jesus must live with the expectation that we may see the Antichrist in our lifetime. All followers of Jesus must live with the expectation that we may see the Antichrist in our lifetime. We must expect the Antichrist to appear before Jesus returns. It might not happen in our lifetime, but we must live with that expectation. Now, Alexander Sosnitsky 
Yeah, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states or classes of people, but right through every human heart. He's saying everyone has the capacity for evil and is indeed evil, every human act. And he's right, the, the breast of every child houses a potential beast. Uh, those who were once precious infants have gone on to do the most horrible things on the planet. Hitler was once a baby. Think of that. The sad reality, you see, is that every human being is morally bankrupt from birth. Our capacity for invention is matched only by our capacity for evil. Uh, so we do not need, we know this ourselves, we don't need to read the Bible to know that we are all born evil. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have got a capacity for good, but we are essentially evil beings, fallen beings. We, we don't know, we don't need anyone to tell us that. We can see it around us. Uh, we may suppress it. We, we, we read the news yesterday, didn't we? Well, this morning, if you're waking up, there's a man in Thailand who just murdered 20 people. Why is that? Because all human beings are born evil. We know that. We see it in the news around us. We may suppress this knowledge, but deep down, we know we are born fallen. We know that. What the Bible helps us to see, especially in verse 13, verse, verse um verse 14 of Mark chapter 13, is that we are not getting better. Quite the opposite. Uh, human beings are, in fact, in competition with Satan to be the most evil person around. The, the evil of the human humanity is growing. And what the Bible is telling us in these verses is that the evil of humanity is growing and it is paving the way for the dawn of the Antichrist, who will be the crescendo of human rebellion against God. He is the man of sin. He is a human being who will be the apex of rebellion against God. Human beings will one day formalize their alliance, which they struck in Eden with Satan. And they'll formalize it through this man of sin, whom Jesus calls here the abomination of desolation. Let's read verse 14 again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Just in those few words there, those few words that Jesus speaks there, so pregnant with meaning, that's why they call for understanding. It will help you to understand this by keeping in mind two truths that we must answer to understand this passage. What is the abomination of desolation? Question number one. Question number two, what is the place where he ought not to stand? That is the second question. So the first question, what does Jesus mean by the abomination of desolation? The abomination, or rather an abomination in the Bible, refers to things that are repugnant and cause such great evil and offense before the God of the Bible. That's what an abomination is. So we think in the Old Testament, the Bible says that idols are an abomination before the Lord. It says the sin of homosexuality is an abomination before the Lord. Not just the sin of homosexuality, it causes other, other sins also abominations. Things that are morally repugnant, unthinkable. That is an abomination. 
The word desolation means destruction or emptying of a place or people. And it's an emptying that is brought about by some disaster or judgment. So, for example, in Psalm 69, verse 29, we read this. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Let it be emptied. So, we've got two words there, desolation and abomination. We bring them together. What does it then mean? Well, it means that the abomination of desolation means a blasphemous and rebellious person against God who brings destruction in the world or emptying in the world. And he brings this destruction or emptying on God's people. Keep that in mind. And we know Jesus here is talking about a person. Why? Well, let's read verse 14 again. But when you see the abomination of standing, where? Where he ought not to be. We just let the Bible speak for itself and it tells us it is a singular he. It is not a thing. It is a person. It is not a group of people. It is one person in the original language. So it is a person who brings such evil before the world, before God. So that's question number one. What is the what is the abomination of desolation? Question number two, we said, what, the question number two is this. What is this place where Jesus mentions where this man of sin will stand? What is the place where he ought not to be? Well, to answer that question, we must let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's the principle we follow when you're trying to understand scripture. So we need to turn to Levi Matthew, one of the disciples, who gives us additional details on the same statement. And we find it, you can flick over to Matthew 24, just before Mark, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. It says this, right? It says, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is just the same discourse, the Levite discourse, but Matthew adds more detail. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Matthew is saying the place where this sinful man ought not to be is actually a holy place. And he helps us because he tells us, if you want to know more, flick over to Daniel, right? That's what he says there. Jesus said, um, it is Jesus who said there, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now, who is Daniel? The prophet Daniel lived six centuries before Jesus. And Daniel had many extraordinary visions. And one of the visions that Daniel had concerned the abomination man, this man of sin. And therefore, let us flick. There will be a lot of flicking today, by the way. Let us flick to Daniel 11. Take your time. So there is Isaiah in the Bible. And uh, there is uh, Jeremiah. There is Ezekiel. Uh, and uh, there is uh, Daniel um, as well. So you can flick and find Daniel in the Bible there. And we are looking for Daniel 11. Chapter 11. 
right? Verse 31, and we'll read to verse 37. Daniel 11, verse 31 to verse 37. So this is what the prophet Daniel saw of things that were to come. He's living in the 6th century, and this before Christ, and six centuries before Christ, and he said, he saw this. Verse 31 of chapter 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their gods shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understands, finds familiar, isn't it? Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. And the king, verse 36, the king shall do as he wills. He shall exhort himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. It shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is discreet shall be done. He shall pay no attention, verse 37, to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, when we read the Bible, we must, when we read prophecies in the Bible, we must be aware that prophecies tend to be fulfilled bit by bit. That's very important. So principle number one, the Bible must interpret the Bible. Principle number two, you need to be aware when it comes to prophecy, is that prophecies tend to be fulfilled, to be fulfilled bit by bit, or partially, then a complete fulfillment later. Sometimes there could be bits of bits, and then eventually the full thing is fulfilled. We might think of, we, we, we might think of Bible prophecy a bit like a football team, or a football match. In a, think of a football match where two teams are battling it out on a football field, and one team is under pressure. They are wobbling, right? The goal has not been scored yet, but they are under pressure. What we normally see when that is happening, you know, the other side is camped into the other side of the, the football field. Uh, well, what we see usually is that before the goal finally arrives in a football game, it is preceded by near misses. So, somebody hits the bar, right? You know, the guy is coming, right? The government just tell us. Or perhaps there's a penalty and they just miss the penalty. We get this sense that it is coming. What we're seeing are anticipation. And eventually, of course, the other side scores and we say, yeah, we, we saw it coming. And it has happened now. That's, a, that's how prophecy is, you see. In, in the Bible, prophecy is eventually fulfilled perfectly, but God plants anticipations in history to build up the momentum, so to speak, to the final perfect fulfillment. So keep that in mind. So in this case, the prophecy of Daniel uh, initially points us to the abomination man 
who came in 167 BC. The name of the man is Antiochus IV of Seleucia. Uh, he actually gave himself the title Antiochus Epiphanes. The word epiphany means God manifest. So we might say clearly this man had a, had a, had a, had a, had a ego the size of the universe. He regarded himself as God. And why history tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem in one and in seven BC, he set scriptures on um, well just prior to that actually, and he set scriptures on fire. He burned circumcision, and he even put many God-fearing Jews to death. Then, I think two years after, in one sixty-seven BC, he entered the temple in Jerusalem, and he sacrificed the pig on the altar of burnt offerings and set up an altar to Zeus. He literally fulfills the prophecies we just read in Daniel. In fact, the act of abomination that Antiochus Epiphanes committed, this abomination and insult, incensed the Jews so much that they rose up in what history calls the Maccabean Revolt. And yet, that was only a partial fulfillment. We know that. How do we know it was a partial fulfillment? Why wouldn't it be a final fulfillment? Well, we know that because Daniel tells us so. So when we turn now to Daniel 12, verse 9 to 13, it speaks of an abomination that causes desolation that will come in the end times. Let's read Daniel 12, verse 9 to 13. If you flick over there, Daniel 12, verse 9 to 13. It says this. He said, Go your way, Daniel. This is the angel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall purify themselves, verse 10, and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and make themselves, uh, the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Sounds familiar again. And from that time the, that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now, we don't have time to unpack the days, and you are very thankful for that, I'm sure, right? But the point is that this passage, particularly Daniel 12, is pointing forward to the time of the end, as verse 9 says. And verse 12, 13 notes. This is why 200 years later, after Antiochus' epiphany, Jesus is revealing to us in Mark 13, verse 14, that the final man of sin is yet to come. He will come just before Jesus returns. Now, like Daniel's prophecy, Jesus' own prophecy concerning the man of sin also has a partial fulfillment. I hope you're following. It also has a partial fulfillment because it's the prophecy in the Bible and that's how prophecies are fulfilled. 
It has a partial fulfillment that also anticipates a final fulfillment. So Daniel's fulfillment anticipates a final fulfillment, and Jesus' own prophecy anticipates a final fulfillment. But all of them are pointing to the same final fulfillment. The partial fulfillment for Jesus probably took place in AD 70 when the Roman army led by the future emperor Titus captured the city of Jerusalem. History records that his soldiers set up altars in the temple area and offered sacrifices to pagan gods after the defeat of Jewish rebels. But we know AD 70 was only a partial fulfillment. How? Why? Because specific historic details of what happened actually do not fully fulfill what Jesus says. So, for example... Titus never proclaimed himself God, as, we, as the scripture clearly indicates the man of abomination will do. We also know that the destruction actually was before the temple was desecrated. That's why there was a lot of fighting before the temple was desecrated. Not this, there was destruction after, but the bulk of it was before. We also know actually that Christians fled before, not after the abomination of desolation. Jesus makes it very clear in this passage in verse 14 uh, of chapter 13. Did you notice that? It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is talking about an event that we, before it, it happens, we won't really get a sense of its gravity and we'll only run to rescue to, 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 for safety after it has taken place. And clearly that doesn't fit what happened fully in AD 70. So we know that AD 70, yes, points to what Jesus said, but it is only, it is incomplete. And we know that not only from history, but we know that because of the Bible. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that the man of sin is still coming. So we're still following. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1 to verse 12. We are still trying to answer that question, aren't we? What is the place where he ought not to stand to be? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 12 says this. This is Apostle Paul writing. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now are being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So Paul is talking about the end times here. He says, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, somebody sort of claiming the Holy Spirit has spoken to them, or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. We might even say the son of desolation. Verse 14. Who, verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I... When I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, 
so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Verse 8, and when and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they have refused to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What do we make of that? Well, we see that it's similar to what Daniel is talking about, what Jesus is talking about. It's the same thing. Paul is telling us here, isn't it, that there will come the man of sin. He calls him the man of lawlessness who will appear before Jesus comes. We know 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is talking about before the coming of the Lord. That's when it will appear. Right? This man will be is the same man that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And he's the same man the Apostle John calls the Antichrist. And we can turn to that, can't we? First turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're still jumping around a little bit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. We'll read verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. And you also read verse 21 to verse 23. So verse 18 of chapter 2, First John says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son as the Father. Whoever confesses the Son as the Father also. The important thing is that I took you to First John, just to remind you that John also anticipates the coming of the Antichrist. He says, you are heard the Antichrist is coming. And John says, he is coming. Right? And John helps us to see that the Antichrist is a person who stands opposed to Christ, but it should also be thought of as a replacement for Christ. Anti can mean against, in this case, in the original, or in replace of Christ. Now, the important thing you need to understand both in what Jesus said, in what Daniel says, in what Paul says, and in what John says to an extent is that the Antichrist is not Satan. And we know that just by turning, for example, to Revelation 13, which also talks about the Antichrist. He's called the beast there. He's not Satan. Rather, he's a human being who will come by the power of Satan. He will be fully controlled and possessed by Satan. Now, that's a lot I know to take in. And we're just scratched the surface. So thank you for bearing with me so far. Here's a key point. Since Jesus and Paul 
and John are talking about the same person, but particularly Jesus and Paul and Daniel are talking about the same person. The holy place or the place where this Antichrist ought not to stand is the same place that Paul calls the temple of God. Uh, you don't have to flick back to 2 Thessalonians, but you remember verse 4 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 said, Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul answers that big question we've been asking. Um, what is the place where you ought not to stand? And Paul says the place where you ought not to stand is the temple of God. But that doesn't help you, does it? Because then you have to ask, what does it mean? What does Paul mean by the temple of God? I told you that this is going to take a while. Well, we have to let Paul interpret Paul. That's the most important point at this point. In his letter, people, some people look to other places to interpret what the temple of God is. No, let Paul be consistent. And Paul calls the temple of God the church. There's no doubt about that. We know that, for example, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 17 says this. You all, you all know this passage, I'm sure. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You, by the way, there is Pulo. You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. We think of that verse actually usually in terms of the individual, but the original language there is Pulo. Do you know that all of you are God's temple? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So the individual believer is God's temple, but the church is ultimately God's temple because it is the body of Christ. Not just 1 Corinthians, but we can turn to Ephesians, 3, Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 21. Paul says this, So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a what? In a holy temple in the Lord. Let scripture interpret scripture. And let Paul interpret Paul. That's a good way to read these passages. So, after 40 minutes, probably, we come to the conclusion, to, to, to what well, I think, we haven't finished yet, but we come to a key point, don't we? That the most likely meaning of what Jesus is saying in Mark 13, verse 14, is that the Antichrist will exalt himself within the body of Christ, the church. Now, I understand that there are some who believe the Antichrist will take his place in a future temple rebuilt in Israel. It is possible, after all, it does say, let the reader understand. It is possible we haven't fully understood that. But I think it's biblically highly improbable. Any future temple cannot be called a temple of God. Why? Because our Lord Jesus has already judged the temple and he has pronounced destruction over it. Where? In Mark 11. This is why we must read the scriptures verse by verse. 
We have come to Mark 13 already aware that the temple in Jerusalem has already been judged. It's already been done with. Jesus has come as the temple of God. He will die on the cross and by dying he will destroy all other access to God except only through him. The temple like the fig tree is now obsolete and it will never arise again. That's what we looked at in Mark 11. The body of Christ is now the true temple of God. We are his temple in Christ. Technically, it is Christ with the temple, but we are his body. So therefore, the church, Paul rightly calls in Ephesians 2, the temple of God. And what Jesus is telling us here is that before he returns, the Antichrist will come to seek to take the position of Jesus within the church or the visible church of God, we might say. Jesus is saying humanity is pregnant with an abomination that is growing inside it. And one day the human race will give birth to this man of sin. And what this man of sin is we're going to become so depraved that the church of God itself will find itself under attack, subsumed by this man of sin. And that's why later on we'll see that Jesus warns us against false messiahs, false Christ. That's why Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2 about being watchful of the spirit of delusion that is to come. Because that is the abomination. Now, we don't know all the details of how that may look like, how this could happen within the church of God, but we are being warned that it will happen. So, 40 minutes. And the question there for you are like, wow, thank you for that. Uh, that's interesting. What am I supposed to do with that information? <laughs> it's interesting. At least now I can read verse 14 and I sort of agree with you 50%. But what am I supposed to do with what I've just heard? How does this help me on Monday? Does any of this matter? Why do I need to know the Antichrist is coming? And you probably knew that just by looking around, right? Well, you need to know that for two reasons. Two quick reasons. First of all, Jesus wants you to be ready for what is going to happen immediately when the man of sin arrives. You don't know when that's going to be. You might be here, we might be alive, and you need to know. Remember, we won't know that he's coming until he shows up, the man of sin. We're only going to know his identity after he shows up within the temple of God, the church. Second thing, you need to know, therefore, well, related to that, you need to know what will happen when he shows up, right? That's what I meant by the first point. And we'll look this evening, some of the things that will happen when he shows up. Verse 14 to 23 tells us, for example, there will be great suffering and there will be a spirit of delusion and confusion in the world. So you need to be ready, prepared. Verse 23 is really getting at that. Be alert, be on your guard. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the first reason you need to know. The second reason you need to be aware, and this is the more immediate, and this is what will help you on Monday, right? You need to know this this truth because John has told us that though the Antichrist is coming, future, the Antichrist is also already here. The, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. That's what First John 2 verse 18 says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming in the future. So now, many Antichrists are already here. Are already here. The spirit, you can turn to chapter 4 of John, by the way, as well. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. Paul says that, doesn't he? We read that by Paul. Paul said that as well in verse, um, did you pick that up? In verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's why this matters. 
When we look around the world, it is clear that human beings are becoming more and more depraved. And people are wondering, what is going on? Where is this world going? Well, that passage answers that. Mark 13, verse 14. Where it's going is that it is paving the way for the arrival of the Antichrist. Because his spirit is already at work in the world. That's the Bible's answer. Satan is already even now actively opposing God on everything. Life, sexuality, truth, freedom, identity, faith. Believers should not be surprised about that. It will just get worse and worse. You know, it's a bit like Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Where we talk about that. It's getting dark when you're watching the Lord of the Rings, you know. The power of, uh, of, 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 of Sauron, I guess, grows stronger and stronger. Well, that's actually the image of the Antichrist, really, probably talking to add in mind there. Because really, every year that passes, the spirit of Antichrist in our world is getting stronger. He is already at work in the world, but his power grows strong every day until he finally makes an appearance. Until he, we can't go into that, who restrains him, allows him to be revealed. That's why this matters. And this raises a question for all of us here this morning. But the question this raises is a very simple one. First of all, is whose spirit are you being controlled by? Answer that for yourself. Whose spirit are you being controlled by? Is it the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist? When you look at your life, can you honestly say you have surrendered to the spirit of God and are living for Christ? Or can you, would you be honest enough to say, no, I haven't surrendered to God. I am being led by the spirit of the Antichrist. I am doing things that doesn't please God, but rather pleases the spirit of the Antichrist that's getting stronger in the world. You need to be honest with yourself about that. There are many who visibly identify with the temple of God, the church, but live under the spirit of the Antichrist. A true follower of Jesus is a person who knows they are a sinner and have repented of their sin and surrendered their whole life to Jesus to save them. A Christian is a person who can honestly say, I know I am worse than the devil, but I am trusting in the blood of Jesus to cleanse me from my sin. I know that I am not different from this Antichrist who will take his seat and desecrate the temple of God because my sin desecrates this body and spirit God has given me to in this world. Every day I put myself first. Every day I proclaim that I am God by things I do. Every day I take myself to be better than Jesus. I know I am a vile sinner. And I also know that Jesus died to pay for my rebellion against God. So I've turned my back on the spirit of the Antichrist. I am trusting in Jesus alone. That's the born again Christian. That's a true follower of Jesus. That is what to be, it means to be a Christian. It is to know we are competing against Satan in so many ways, in wickedness. But thank God for the blood of Jesus. We have been made clean. And we have truly surrendered to Jesus. And we are now being led by the Spirit of God. And we are changing 
to be led by the Spirit of God. Does that describe you, friend, here? Have you truly turned to Jesus? Have you told him that you are a sinner and asked him to forgive you of all your sin? Well, if you have not, come to Jesus now. Thank you for listening to me for 50 minutes. I think this will be the longest message I've ever given. Thank you for listening. But it's more important here that you ensure you do not leave this place still controlled by the spirit of the Antichrist. Come to Jesus now. He's reaching out to you with his arms of love through those nailed hands on the cross. He longs to hold you. He longs to set you free from the spirit of the Antichrist. He wants to take care of you. He wants to, you to live under him for eternity. Do it now. Don't wait until you're old. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, regardless of how old you are. Right now, right here, you can live the domain of darkness and the control of the spirit of the Antichrist and enter to be led by the spirit of God. God desires to fill you with his love and his Holy Spirit. Look, the spirit of the Antichrist promises you freedom. It promises you that you, it's better to live for yourself. But we are seeing in the scriptures here, and we'll see more this evening and next week, that his only goal, the Antichrist, is to destroy your soul. Oh, friend, why would you choose Satan? Why would you choose to keep standing with the abomination of desolation? Why would you choose to be comfortable with the spirit of Satan? Why would you oppose the creator who made you and longs to rescue you from that grip of Satan. Come to Jesus now. Confess you are a sinner. Ask him to forgive you of all your sin. And he will. Because when he forgives you because you have repented, you will become a friend of Jesus. Make that decisive decision for Christ today. Do not hold on to the Antichrist. Do not choose to live in what is falsely thought called freedom. Choose true freedom from the Antichrist by turning to Christ. Some of you here are trusting in Jesus. You have truly surrendered your life to Christ. Well, this truth, let this truth encourage you, isn't it? To keep trusting in Jesus. You know that the Antichrist is coming. But you sometimes forget that. You forget that his spirit is already here. And you sometimes give in to satanic lies. He's making you doubt whether Jesus is enough for you. You are giving in to his suggestion to add to Jesus the love of the things of this world. You are being tempted, even this moment, to give Jesus only bits of your life. You are letting the spirit of the age entice you to make Jesus second in your life. You are in Jesus, but slowly in your own way, you are allowing the Antichrist to desecrate that body Christ has purchased at such a high cost. You are doing the very thing the abomination of desolation is doing. You are allowing him to, you are allowing the Antichrist to desecrate the body of your body that Christ has purchased by allowing sin to control you in so many ways. I don't just mean addictions, I mean sins, bad thoughts, all these things. You are veering away from sincere devotion to Christ to following and being led by the spirit of Satan. You are allowing the devil to have a foothold in your life. Yes, the devil cannot steal you because you are truly converted. 
but he's rendering you defiled, impotent for things of God. Is that you? Beloved, this passage is saying, come back afresh to Jesus. You have a wonderful Savior who loves you and gave himself up for you. Hold on to this Jesus who knows your future. Hold on to this Jesus who has given you a new life with God. Keep your focus on him. Remember Jesus risen from the dead for you. Jesus is the only thing you have going for you. It is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus other things is an abomination. Look to Christ. All you need in your life is Jesus. To have Jesus is eternal life with God. And you have him for life. So keep looking to his cross and nothing else. And the good news of the Bible, beloved, why it's so wonderful to be a Christian, is that we do not hold ourselves. God holds on to us. We are held by Christ. We know we'll make it because Christ keeps us firm in him by his spirit. God the spirit who lives in us. In all who trust in Christ. If you are in Jesus, you have all the help you need from God to stand firm against the spirit of the Antichrist today. And even if he appears physically himself tomorrow. And this evening we'll look at why the future timing of Antichrist matters to the church and how we should prepare for it.